Good evening. I'm Paul Durienzo, and this is the WBAI News for January 28th, Thursday. And we're going to talk about COVID and nursing homes, the 102nd clock town countdown to the possibility of nuclear Armageddon. Mayor Bill de Blasio uh, telling us a little bit about his State of the City speech that is going to happen tonight about his plans for police reform. A new variant of the coronavirus emerged Thursday in the United States, posing yet another public health challenge in a country already losing more than 3,000 people to COVID-19 every day. The mutated version of the virus, first identified in South Africa, was found in two cases in South Carolina. Public health officials said it's almost certain that there are more infections that have not been identified yet. There are also concerns that this version could spread more easily and that vaccines could be less effective against it. The two cases were discovered in adults in different regions of the state and don't appear to be connected. Neither of the people infected has traveled recently. We'll have a special report a little bit later on how, how it was possible that New York State undercounted the number of people who died from COVID in state nursing homes. And President Joe Biden on Thursday ordered government health insurance markets to reopen for a special sign-up window, offered uninsured Americans a haven as the spread of COVID-19 remains dangerously high and vaccines aren't yet widely available. Biden signed an executive order directing the healthcare.gov insurance markets to take new applications for subsidized benefits, something Donald Trump's administration had refused to do. He also instructed his administration to consider reversing other Trump health care policies, including curbs on abortion counseling and the imposition of work requirements for low-income people getting Medicaid. Press Secretary Jen Psaki says it's an example of the Biden agenda. Millions of people are out of work. People don't know how to put food on the table. Uh, these challenges are real. We, it, the data shows it, but we also see long lines for food pantries. We see people who are out of work and don't know what they're going to do to make ends meet. And so that's tangible. That's real. And we want the the, pack, the packet is going to need to be big and bold to address that. And the press secretary added the administration is committed to getting kids back in school safely. For areas where they are more populated, where schools where there is a lot more foot traffic, um, that there are going to need to be a lot of steps uh, put in place in order to make the schools reopening safe. But we are committed to doing that. That's why the president signed an executive order uh, last week uh, supporting the safe reopening of schools. It requires the Departments of Education and CDC to provide evidence-based guidance. So that will include things like testing, smaller class sizes, more ventilation, better cleaning, PPE, strong state and local public health guidance. But we want to provide that clarity from the federal government because there's a lot of confusion and public schools especially don't know what steps they need to take, how to ensure they're safe. Those are all good decisions that are going to be made locally, but we want to give them the guidance. That's in process. Our team is working on that. Dr. Walensky, the CDC and our health experts, and we hope to have more specifics soon. And that's White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. In more COVID news, New York may have undercounted nursing home deaths from the coronavirus by thousands. That's according to a report released today by Attorney General Letitia James. Linda Perry has this report. New York State Attorney General James's office released a report today which highlights the neglect of New York residents in nursing homes during the pandemic. The report directly contradicts Governor Andrew Cuomo's assertion that New York State did better than other states in protecting its most vulnerable populations in nursing homes. Here he is back in May. New York has one of the highest populations of nursing home residents of any state in the country, over 100,000 
residents. Uh, but New York's percentage of deaths in nursing homes is the 34th highest of any state. So if you look at the states and the percentages of people who died in nursing homes as a percentage of that death, uh, New York is number 34. The Attorney General's investigation finds that a larger number of residents died from COVID than data reported by the Department of Health. The actual count could be 56% higher, putting the official nursing home toll of 8,711 to more than 13,000, the highest in the nation. The study also finds that putting COVID-19 patients in nursing homes may have worsened the situation and obscure data. Governor Cuomo said he was following instructions from the Trump administration. What New York did was follow what the Republican administration said to do. That's not my attempt to politicize it. It's my attempt to depoliticize it. So don't criticize the state for following the president's policy. Preliminary findings in the report also show residents were at increased risk by lack of safety protocols, failure to isolate COVID-19 residents, continued communal activities such as communal dining, insufficient personal protective equipment, insufficient COVID-19 testing for residents and staff in the early stages of the pandemic. All of this put residents and staff at increased risk, according to the report. The AG's office also found that the model used for reimbursing nursing homes gives a financial incentive to owners. Preliminary investigations indicate that nursing homes took a variety of approaches to decisions to admit residents during the COVID-19 pandemic, even as they were experiencing staffing shortages due to staff illness related to COVID-19. The report says approaches suggest admission decisions were affected to varying degrees by financial motives. The report is available online on our website, WBAI.org, and on the Attorney General's website, ag.ny.gov. Turning to today's COVID data, statewide the infection rate is 5.34%. There were 162 COVID deaths across the state yesterday. 8,502 patients are hospitalized with the virus statewide. Locally, the positivity rate on Long Island is 6.7%, Westchester 6.4%. Turning to the boroughs in the Bronx, 7.13%, Brooklyn 5.58% positivity rate, and Manhattan 3.43%. In Queens, 5.89%, and in Staten Island, the positivity rate is 5.58%. Cuomo says while more vaccines are on the way from the Biden administration, we must continue actively working to protect our hospitals and their staff to help ensure they don't become overwhelmed. We're all feeling COVID fatigue, he says, but New Yorkers have the tools to fight the war, wear a mask, social distance, and avoid gatherings. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In its annual ritual of things to be really, really, really afraid of, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists revealed just how close the world is to Armageddon. That's about 100 seconds, both from nuclear weapons and a relatively new addition to the bad news that's available today. 
climate change. Today, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists leaves the doomsday clock unchanged. It is 100 seconds to midnight. Dr. Robert Rosner is a physicist at the University of Chicago and one of two board members who made the reveal. He says bombs do need to be modernized to make them safe and to make it easier to get rid of them. It's not particularly safe. Uh, So what we're concerned about has to do with the fragility of the of the systems that are in place to deal with nuclear weapons. I don't think anyone has in mind an overt attack by the Russians on us or the Chinese on us. In the days of the Cold War from this perspective, I think are probably pretty much over. But what we are concerned about is the fact the weapons are in place, the systems to launch are in place, and what we know from history is there have been mistakes made. There have been cases when we thought that the Russians had launched at us, cases where the Russians thought that we had launched against them, and it was just pure luck. Just the intervention of a few individuals who realized, oh, maybe there's a problem here that prevented a retaliatory strike that would have been real. And the danger of that has not receded, and in part because the systems that are in place then, when the mistakes were made, are still the same systems that we have today. The greatest fear is just having an accident. What's the way out of this? How can we get control of Raytheon and all these companies that keep pushing, pushing, pushing for these very, very valuable investments, even though there's no rational need? The issue is that one has to distinguish between modernization of weapons and the idea of uh, keeping the weapons functional. The last thing you want to do is have a bunch of nuclear weapons hanging around that have flaws as they age with some of the safety measures that were designed to make sure that, for example, when a bomb falls out of an airplane, that has happened. When one of the bombers that carries these weapons crashes, that the bomb doesn't go off. By the way, that's happened. So the United States government does have a duty to make sure that these weapons stay functional. They work as, uh, as designed, including the safety mechanisms. It's a different story about whether or not you want to modernize them to the point of basically having different weapons. The Bolton has long argued that we should not be modernizing in that second sense. We should not be building new weapons. But we do believe that it's important to keep the weapons safe. The problem is that in these discussions, these differences are washed over. They're ignored. What about what the UN is trying to do? All the UN countries that passed a treaty that just went into effect. It's completely understandable why they have done that. These are the states that do not have nuclear weapons, and they don't want to have nuclear weapons. And and I say, all power to them. That's great. There is a political context here. These states are also the states that that have uh, their signatories to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And the Non-Proliferation Treaty is a treaty that obligates all the signatories, that includes, by the way, the United States, to do two things. The ones that don't have weapons, they signed on to not themselves ever getting weapons. And the, the weapon states, so states like the United States, Russia, China, they all signed, uh, obligated themselves to slowly reduce the number of weapons. And now you can ask, so who's been behaving themselves? Well, the weapon states haven't been behaving themselves all that well. We, did, we kind of stopped at 1500, you know, that, that was new start. 
We almost lost New START. Luckily enough, the Biden administration has agreed with Russia to, to restart New START, uh, extend it five years. Um, but are we really, are we ever going to get below 1500? That's not obvious. When we don't seem to be moving in that direction. The Russians don't want to move in that direction. How many would it take to destroy civilization as it is, as we know it? Many, many fewer than that. Many, many fewer. A few hundred will do the job. So we're completely, I mean, the number of weapons that exist is just ridiculously too many over what would actually, you know, if somebody seriously wanted to do something, it's just too many. In fact, in the 60s, we had tens of thousands of these bombs. We completely, I mean, it was just, it was madness. I think that's the only word to describe it, just complete madness. Dr. Robert Rosner is a physicist at the University of Chicago, a member of the board of the Bulletin for the Atomic Scientists, who revealed today that we remain 100 seconds before midnight. And in Georgia, a liquid nitrogen leak at a northeast Georgia poultry plant killed six people Thursday and sent 11 others to the hospital. At least three of those injured at the Foundation Food Group plant in Gainesville were reported in critical condition. Poultry plants rely on refrigeration systems that can include liquid nitrogen. Sheriff's deputies, OSHA, and state fire marshal were investigating the deaths and the cause of the leak. Foundation Food Group Vice President for Human Resources, Nicholas Ankrum, called the leak a tragic accident and said early indications are that a nitrogen line ruptured in the facility. And, of course, meatpacking plants, things that provide things like chicken, pork, and other plants are also where essential workers often often work without access to proper PPE and other protective gear. We'll be following that story for that reason alone as it develops. In local COVID news, Mayor de Blasio addressed allegations that a site providing vaccine shots in Washington Heights was being used, but not by the local people from out-of-towners. And that led to a question to the mayor today about whether or not there was equity in the development and delivery of vaccine inoculations. What happened in Washington Heights is the exact opposite of what we need. If a site is in a community, particularly a community hard hit by COVID, it should be all about reaching out to that community and bringing people in. I heard, I haven't confirmed it myself, but I heard the the application for appointments was only in English in a community where so many people speak Spanish. If that's true, that's ridiculous. So that's, a, that's kind of the poster child of what not to do. I think the challenge is if a site is not community-based, of course it's not going to get uh, the kind of the clientele, the folks coming to it, that we need to engage in this effort. Tonight is the mayor's annual State of the City speech, a big event for journalists, if not for the rest of the public, and his big reveal is going to be a plan to give local residents a chance to interview potential precinct police commanders before they're hired. That's a first in New York City. We're announcing today a major change that will bring the community into the process of selecting precinct commanders. And I'm very excited about this because as someone who started out as a local school board member and a city council member, I saw the amazing work of our police precinct councils, really dedicated neighborhood residents 
care deeply about making communities safe, but also holding police accountable and bringing the voices of the community forward. Well, from now on, police precinct councils will be interviewing candidates for precinct commander roles. When a precinct commander spot comes open, uh, the department will provide, the commissioner will provide to the police precinct council in that area, three to five candidates, uh, folks who are ready to serve and lead, folks that represent the diversity of this city, and the precinct council will interview each of them and provide feedback to the commissioner. Commissioner will make an ultimate decision and then work with the precinct council going forward to make sure that new leader takes over effectively. A member of the growing club of New York City candidates for mayor is Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, a former cop. He says that the opportunity for community involvement at the precinct level is a welcome change. At 15, I was beaten by police in a precinct house. So to sit here today with you, Mr. Mayor, as the Brooklyn Borough President and discuss how we can give communities especially lower income communities with higher crime rates like the one I grew up in in South Jamaica, Queens. A role in choosing their precinct commander is a personal one for me, and I cannot thank you enough. Community policing must be responsive to what a community wants and needs. This is true now as it ever was, and sadly, I think we have taken a step backward over the last year. That cannot happen. We need New Yorkers affected by crime to be empowered and confident to work with the NYPD to get uh, the bad guys while protecting everyone else's civil rights. And that's Eric Adams, the uh, candidate for mayor and Brooklyn Borough president. An unusual show of support from NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea usually defensive of the officers under his command, Shea says he's discovered the community. People want to feel a connection to their NYPD, and especially at the leadership positions. And this, I think, really goes very far into building that trust both ways. I think from the PD perspective and from the executive perspective, it really lends to an environment where it's it's a team process. And you've talked about it and we've certainly talked about it for years now about that shared responsibility police and community working together my perspective it's a win it's an opportunity for precinct commanders to really from the ground floor speak to the community that they're they're working so hard to protect and serve and get to know them from an early step i think this is a win-win i think it's a positive for new york city and that's Police Commissioner Dermot Shea and the mayor, despite his optimism for the new changes in how precinct commanders will be hired and his embrace of the Department of Investigation report that blasted the NYPD's response to last spring's George Floyd protests. He defended the surrounding or kettling of peaceful protesters and the violent arrests. I think that happened on June 4th before the night's curfew had even begun. But I also ask you to you know, be objective about the DOI report and what it expressed about the many challenges that day and night in the Bronx and the threat of violence. The commissioner has spoken about that. I've spoken about that, too. That was a deep and real dynamic. But I think we have to move forward and we have to turn the page, but with a real acknowledgement. So I, I think that's the right way to do it for the commissioner to have that conversation with people from the community as part of moving us forward. Another decision made with, uh, 
the basis of intelligence reports possibly to the NYPD and whether or not those uh, intelligence reports were accurate. Mayor de Blasio also addressed the on and off again plans from Governor Cuomo to restart indoor dining in the city. Yesterday, Cuomo seemed to change his pessimistic view with the possibility of a policy change coming Friday. Mayor de Blasio says he's consulting with the governor. Yeah, the governor and I spoke yesterday morning. The bottom line here is I really do respect the state's role. The state has to make decisions. There's clearly a division of labor here. They make that decision. What I believe in is focusing on the data and the science. I know the governor does, too. Would you eat indoors right now, given the the arrival of the new variant and its higher level of transmissibility? Yeah, look, I would, because if indoor dining is brought back, I'm certain the state will do it with careful restrictions and our health department as uh, the agency that does the enforcement uh, is going to be really strong in doing that enforcement. So if that's what comes to pass, certainly I would have confidence in it. And the mayor took a moment to mark the passing of a friend, the Doe Fund founder, George McDonald, an organization that helps homeless people find jobs. Although McDonald was an opponent of the Blasio in the most recent election, the two were fast friends. This is a great example. George McDonald, a guy with so much heart, so much personality. Uh, I got to know George about 20 years ago when I first became the chairman of the General Welfare Committee in the city council, working on issues like homelessness. Uh, This guy, all heart, all creativity, didn't start out his career assuming he'd be helping the homeless, but his heart was moved and he made it his life's work and had over the years had tremendous impact helping homeless folks get their lives turned around back on their feet, always with real respect and devotion for everyone's humanity. Uh, A funny, warm guy. I like, I have to say, I liked George McDonald so much, even though we ran against each other for mayor. And this is maybe a little point about the civility that needs to be a part of our lives. We happen to both be candidates in the same contest for mayor in 2013, but it it didn't interfere with our friendship one bit. Amongst the amazing things George did was the creation of the Ready, Willing, and Able initiative. I think most New Yorkers have had an opportunity to see uh, these good men and women out there uh, making our city cleaner, uh, helping our communities while turning their lives around. Uh, This is a great New York City success story. Uh, In the state of the city, I'll be talking about taking some of the inspiration we got from the Ready, Willing, and Able initiative and turning it into something that will be an important part of our recovery. But look, um, George McDonald, a great New Yorker who made a great impact, a great human being and a real friend. George, rest in peace. Mayor de Blasio. And finally, we have another story, very interesting story. The city council passed a landmark bill today that will more than double the number of street food vendor permits in the five boroughs over the course of a decade. In a 34 to 13 vote, the council passed legislation that aims to give more people the opportunity to start small businesses and eliminate the underground market for street cart permits, which oftentimes cost street vendors tens of thousands of dollars, significantly more than the $200 the city charges vendors to obtain one. Councilwoman Margaret Chin was one of the primary sponsors of the bill, the primary sponsor of the bill. She said the legislation will bring hope and opportunity to hardworking New Yorkers who are immigrants who have been historically left out of the government's support. 
The bill also creates an advisory board to review regulations and a new enforcement office following Mayor de Blasio's move to end the NYPD's purview over street vendors. 400 new permits will be issued each year over the course of 10 years, starting next year, creating 4,000 new permits by the year 2032. These will be in addition to the existing 3,000 permits, which will transition over to the new system. In 1983, the number of street permits in the city was capped at 3,000. Advocates estimate that the actual number of street vendors working in New York City is closer to 10 or 20,000. The scarcity has given rise to a proliferation of illegal subleasing for those wishing to operate but can't obtain a permit from the city. And that's some of the news for Thursday, January 28th, 2021. The news was uh, produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, for the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.